Jesus, we come before you this afternoon together as a community and also gathering with um, the entire community of faith that has met here this weekend and throughout our nation. And we pray right now, Jesus, that our hearts would be turned towards you, that you would continue to meet us where we are in brokenness and humility and pain um, in praise. Jesus, we ask that you would come and, um, and that we would be drawn closer to you and closer to one another as a result of our time and worship of you this afternoon through the study of your word. We ask it in your name. Amen. Okay, so we decided to take a break this Sunday from our number service uh, teaching for a variety of reasons, but in part because I think um, for me personally, it's a hard week and, um, or a hard year or a hard, I don't know, five, six years or 20, I don't know. It feels like there's things that have changed and, and a spark is now six years old. I feel like there's been a variety of things that have occurred in, its, in our six-year life where we've had to stop and say, this is the weekend we're going to remember um, people who have died in a terrorist attack in France or people who have died in a terrorist attack in Iraq or people who have died in a terrorist attack um, here. And so we're constantly, it feels like, it's not constant, but it feels like there have been more moments in the last six years of my pastoral career um, than the first 20 years of my pastoral career where we've started to feel that the chaos that is erupting around the world is getting closer to home. Obviously, this is a privileged position, right? We have, uh, we can know that for the last 17 years, people who've been living in Afghanistan have been living in a country that's been wrought by war. So for those of us who've been here and we're seeing these blips of things starting to come a little bit closer, um, it can feel, though, that things have gotten much worse. It can feel like it's, um, it's not safe to go to a yoga class. It can feel like it's not safe to go to school. It can feel like it's not safe to go to a synagogue or a church um, or a concert. And we can start to feel overwhelmed with all of those things. And I wanted to encourage us this weekend... Um, and just to let you know that the Bible's okay with that feeling. And so the title of our message this evening is, How Long, O Lord? And if you've been feeling like that this week or this year, or maybe it's something personal that's happening in your home and in the walls of your home or within your own body, how long, O Lord, will these things continue? I, I want you to know that the Bible gives voice to that. So we're going to dive into that a little bit today. Um, we're going to start with Psalm 6. Um, and I have the words that are going to come up in English, but you're going to hear it in Hebrew. Um, the first phrasing is just going to be an introductory of the Psalm of David. And then you're going to start to hear him start to read uh, the Psalm in Hebrew. I didn't put the Hebrew up because I know we're all still brushing up on our Hebrew, right? So you'll see the English, which is the translation of what you're hearing. And the reason why we're going to listen to the Hebrew is because what I want you us to know as we approach the book of Psalms um, this evening and sort of find out why this book is in our Bible and how it meets us in moments like this. Even if you don't understand a word of Hebrew, by the way, the word Adonai is the word for God. So if you got that one, you'll, you'll hear it a few times. Um, you will hear the poetry of it because you're going to hear it rhyme and you're going to hear it sort of be a little bit canted or recited like you do a poem. So take a listen. Mizmor Vav. למנצח בנגינות על השמינית מזמור לדוד. אדוני, אל באפך תוכחני, ואל בחמתך תייסרני. חונני, אדוני, 
כי אומלל אני, רפאני אדוני, כי נבהלו עצמי. ונפשי נבהלה מאוד, ואתה אדוני עד מתי? שובה אדוני חלצה נפשי, הושיעני למען חסדיך, כי אין במוות זכריך, בשאול מי יורד אלך. יגעתי באמחתי, אסחב וכל לילה מיתתי, בדמעתי ארסי אמסה. עששה מכעס עיני, עתקה בכל צוררי. צור ממני כל פועלי אבן, כי שמע אדוני כל בכי. שמע אדוני תחינתי, אדוני תפילתי ייקח. יבושו ויבהלו מאוד כל אויבי, ישובו יבושו רגע. I love this psalm. Um, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears and I drench my couch with my weeping. And my eyes waste away because of grief. And they grow weak because of all my foes. I think there's this part of me that has felt um, numb. Like last Shabbat morning when I saw the news about the shooting, there was part of me that was like, well, yeah. Isn't that horrible? I've gotten accustomed to hearing that there's another shooting where people who were just trying to just go about their life or worship or whatever it is that, that they've encountered death when they were searching for life at the hands of somebody who's deeply disturbed and harmed and, and hurt. And, and I also like it because of the hyperbole here, right? Um, have you ever actually flooded your bed with tears and drenched your couch with weeping? And I, I like that the Bible has this imagery. And I think it's important to how we talk about this. I like that the psalmist here is like, all of these people are workers of evil, right? There's not a uh, nuance in that statement. All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror, and they shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. And that's where the psalm ends. Amen. Right? I mean, if I prayed that in my opening prayer... God, make all of our enemies be put to shame and be struck down. Amen. Some of you have been like, that's unusual. I have not heard that previously on a Sunday. The book of Psalms are a gift. They are a gift that keeps on giving. It is the prayer book of Jesus's day and before. Um, it served as sort of the hymnal as you would go before the Lord. These were the songs that you would sing in the temple, uh, in God's house. So that psalm that I was just singing, that, that fits in a worship setting in Jesus' day and before and today still in synagogues. I like the psalms because they're dramatic, right? They give us permission for hyperbole, big emotions, irrationality in our anger and grief. They're filled with imagination and metaphor. They're disruptive. They're bold. They're full of that grief, wild, and they are contradictorily poetic, right? Like you are hearing the poetry of that moment while still seeing all of the dramatic images. And I feel like a lot of times when we want to say, I'm upset, I'm angry, this bad thing has happened, I've lost this person far too young, this thing has occurred in my life, that we have all these people that come alongside us like, well, let me help you mitigate that feeling right? Let me help you tone it down and put it into these correct theological categories um, so that we can still balance it out, right? And, you, and we almost feel that impetus 
um, I feel it very quickly to be like, when somebody comes at you with that rage and grief and anger to be like, oh, but, you know, and then we'll say, but God is good. And we have all these things that we'll try to do to tamper that. And the psalmist doesn't seem to want that. The psalmist starts, or at least provides great space for, this is awful. It's terrible. I can't live with it anymore. I can't sleep. My bed is wet with my tears. I am flooded in grief. My enemies are awful. And amen. And that is appropriate. It belongs there. The entire book of Psalms are going to act for us like good psychiatrists. They don't theologize. They don't explain away our anger. They're not, they are poetry. They don't try to serve to explain, but instead provide images and stories that resonate. That's that image, right? I am weeping so much that my eyes hurt and they're dry and I can't do anything else but this. In fact, the Psalter is the only part of our Bible formulated exactly as human speech to God, right? We have excerpts where Moses talks to God or Abraham's going to talk to God or Mary's going to talk to God or that messenger of God. But instead here, we have this entire book of the Bible that's just like, this is just a bunch of people, lots from David, but from others too, 150 Psalms that are just people talking to God and not God interjecting and saying, you shouldn't talk that way about your enemies, don't worry, tomorrow's a new day, right? It's us, the people of God, crying out in all sorts of big emotions and saying, uh, I need a place to put this. So often in these moments, I feel very much like the disciples when I say, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? And I want to say, well, we can go to the Psalms. The Lord has given us this gift. One of the reasons why we have the Psalms in our Bibles is because honesty is the best policy, The Psalms invite full disclosure and enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. Isn't that true, right? Okay, well, I have to, I'm really angry at God right now, but I shouldn't be angry with God. So now I'm going to deal with trying to not be angry with God, and then I'll be able to pray and ask God for the thing that I need to ask God for. But the truth is we can't have intimacy and we can't have relationship when we're being dishonest. And we're looking and seeking for that relationship with God. So there's a few things that pop up, I think, within our faith practice regarding prayer. Some myths about how do we pray and how do we talk to God when events like this past week happened or events are happening in our lives or with our work situation or our family situation or whatever it is. And one of the myths is that God doesn't have any use for my anger and we should never be angry at God. The psalmist dismisses like just scatters that myth to the wind. You're allowed to get angry. And not just angry at the event or angry at the perpetrator. You're allowed to be angry at God. And I'm not making that up, okay? I know you feel like already, like, that's not good pastoral advice. (laughs) We shouldn't be angry at God. The psalmist says it's okay. You're allowed to get angry at God. There's another myth regarding our prayer and conversation with God that there's no place for despair or fear in the Christian life. There's a a huge myth that like, well, but if you believe in the resurrection, then you go, well, that's very, very sad, but now we're going to focus on the resurrection and the joy. And that's great and good. And if that's how you move through your grief and anger process, fantastic. I'm so happy that you got to the end of that cycle super quick. Good for you. Don't sit in my row. It's going to take me a long time to get there. I'm the pastor you hire if you want somebody weeping and crying at your funeral. Every time I'm having to do a funeral or memorial service, I put on mascara as an act of faith 
and I am never received any reward as a result of that. It's just all the way down my face. Then, because I think that there's a space too for the weeping and the mourning and the loss, even as we very deeply know that he is the resurrection and the life. And I believe that because Jesus himself wept, because people who loved him wept, because when they watched him die on the cross and buried him, they wept. Even knowing that Lazarus, like Martha's response, I know that he will rise again in the world to come, but I'm still crying now. We're still weeping now. And it's okay. There's space for that. This other myth that we have regarding prayer is that we need to have already forgiven our enemy before God will listen to our prayer. And that is not true. Because the entire Psalter, not the entire Psalter, a lot of the Psalter is about how people are really ticking the, the author of the Psalm off. And they're angry about it. And they have not reconciled that out at all. They've not done any work before they've gotten, they've just started right with, I'm angry with this. And maybe isn't that the wisdom of it, right? Is that God is saying, you're supposed to come to me with that anger, with the hatred. You can come to me with it. Jesus can take it all. And by the way, he's not surprised by it. And we're not hiding anything effectively anyway, right? The problem with these other various notions of prayer and these myths is that we can't have an intimate relationship with someone with whom we cannot speak honestly. And praying isn't being nice before God. It's not pretty. It's honest. And we're trying for honesty and vulnerability. And we're trying to be porous. And we're trying to be open. And we're trying to be real. This is, this is the voice that we have right in the middle of our Bible. And the book of Psalms is one of the most frequently quoted books in the New Testament. So this permeates through the rest of our text as well. When we read the Psalms, they expose the hollow sentimentality that often masquerades as prayer. The dangerous falsity of things we have heard and maybe even thought ourselves about what we ought to think and talk about when God is around. The Psalms guard against a religion that's comprised just of ideas about God abstracted from an ongoing relationship with God. It's all very open and real. Scholar Ellen Davis, Dr. Ellen Davis, says that the Psalms are kind of a First Amendment for the faithful. They guarantee us complete freedom of speech before God, and then they give us a detailed model of how to exercise that freedom, even up to its dangerous limits, to the very brink of rebellion. We are given complete freedom of speech before this God of ours. And even as I tell myself that and tell all of us that, I still have such a tendency to want to make it pretty so quick. Um, I found this wonderful, beautiful graphic online, Psalm 13. It's, how long, O Lord, right? What, what are the big words we can see in it? Consider an answer. I've trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's so pretty. And when you zoom in, it's like, why didn't we pull these verses out and make them big and bold? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Why isn't that the bolded <laughs> image search, right? Instead of, instead of the pretty one. Because we want to move to the pretty. We don't want to deal with the real. The real is painful and the real is difficult. But the psalmist is going to make all these bold assumptions for us as they go through these psalms. The first one is that God cares that I'm in pain and God wants to and will do something about it. That's the assumption of the psalmist. As the psalmist starts to complain to God, hey, this is terrible and my bones are breaking and I'm weeping to you with everything I have. And I'm saying this to you because I assume you care. 
And that's a very bold assumption. You see, what's distinctive about Israel's religious perception is this very knowledge that we're called into fully intimate relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth, a relationship that's both probing and transforming, that there's intimacy with this giant creator, God. The Psalms are a rare poetry style that don't have any other parallel in the ancient world, in any other ancient religion. In no other culture did people pray to the high God in language so strong, so forthright, so assumptive, and even rude. Psalm 44, wake up, God. Why are you sleeping? We haven't forgotten you. Why have you forgotten me? I mean, it's fairly bold, isn't it? Slightly rude. If you had gone, right, if I had gone to my mother and said, wake up, mom. Why are you sleeping? Have you forgotten me? Like I said, I would have not gotten my waffle that morning, right? I mean, it's an immediate push right in the face of our Lord. And God gives voice to this, has included it in our canon. Didn't edit it out. Didn't add a little asterisk and footnote at the bottom says, please don't say this on Tuesdays, right? Like it's like very honest, And it's because God can handle it and God made us this way. God has made you and me with these very big emotions. And we have those big emotions in all of that. My my daughter listens to Daniel Tiger, right? Um, And there's this beautiful song, like, so many feelings we need to know. I love it, right? Because God has done, he's made us with these huge, big emotions, The Psalms give us words for all the moods in which we come before God. Adoration, exaltation, gratitude, rage, despair, loneliness, pain, fear, doubt, lament. All of that is contained in these 150 Psalms. Now for us today, as we read it to the modern reader, the Psalms can seem impenetrable. How in the world can we read, let alone pray, these angry and often violent poems from an ancient culture seemingly filled with ill-tempered, patriarchal, moralistic, and vengeful individuals? Like, why do I want to pray their prayers? But as C.S. Lewis noted that when we read the Psalms, no historical adjustment is required because we're in the world that we know. It's a human world. The Psalms give us a way to cuss without cussing, Eugene Peterson says. The Psalms give voice to our anger. They give voice to the reality of the violence in our world. And again, what a privileged position we have had to have felt that we were somehow immune to much of the violence that's been happening around the world. When we're feeling those big feelings, when we're feeling mad with all of that, um, God gives voice to that too. Psalm 58, the psalmist says, Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime and like the untimely birth that never sees the sun. Have you ever prayed that for your enemies? Have you been that mad? Let my enemy be like the snail, like the slug that dissolves into slime. The righteous will rejoice when they see vengeance done. They'll bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. This is in your Bible. And God doesn't censor it. People will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous, and surely there's a God who judges on earth. 
there's some hope here, isn't it? In the face of total evil, the psalmist is hoping that ultimately there will be justice done, that ultimately we will find some righteousness. This psalm, Psalm 5, as the psalmist is so angry and so mad, the psalmist declares there is no truth in their mouths. He's talking about his enemies. Their hearts are destruction, their throats are open graves, and they flatter with their tongues. There's no truth here. Their mouths are full of lies. It's as though they are simply an open grave. Now, many of us, many Christians, we're conditioned to deny our pain, right? To smooth over or ignore the effects of violence, injustice, and loss, even when it's directed against us. We'll say things like, well, let's just offer that up to God, or suffering will make us stronger, or it's for a purpose, or God must have some amazing plan for you, and God won't give us more than we can handle. And we blind ourselves to pain and thereby make a falsehood of praise. Because when we're not honest about what is truly happening in our world and with us and in us and to others, to those, as their blood cries out from the ground, if we're not honest about that, then the praise is false. But see, American optimism doesn't want to know this world. We want to conquer evil by being nice. And nice people don't want to soil their white gloves with the gritty anger at the heart of a cursing, vengeful psalm such as Psalm 109. You want to read, somebody's really angry, read Psalm 109. Which shows us what it feels like to be hated and how it feels to hate. And I contend with all of this stuff right away because I very much in my head constantly and constantly reminding my daughters that God, that in Christ, Jesus gives us this huge command of love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself and you have to love your enemies. And that is very difficult to do and I'm very glad that my Bible gives a voice for when I don't feel like I can do that and for moments of moving to Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That in Christianity, we carry both. When we read the Psalms, they're going to demand engagement with your whole self, rejecting the right answers or the posture appropriate for a Christian and linking the mundane and the raw human emotional experience with the holy. That your anger and your hurt and your pain and your despair and your lament is holy to God. And that God cares for that. In fact, when we look at the book of Psalms, the largest category of Psalms in the Bible are Psalms of Lamentation. Overwhelmingly, those are the most popular, most frequent Psalms, Lamentation. Reminding God of all that there's wrong with the world and demanding that God do something about it. Ancient Israel, y'all, they understood that the kind of prayer in which we need fluency is the loud groan. And they insisted that the cries of the suffering belong in the sanctuary. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, the Hebrew name for the Psalter is Tehillim, which means praises. And yet again, the largest category is lament. So when we lament in good faith, opening ourselves up to God honestly and fully... Only then are we beginning to clear the way to praise. Now we can start to strain toward the time when God will turn our cries into some joy. And when we lament, we're asking God to respond, to listen, and to act that we might move to praise. And we have those beautiful psalms too. 
And if something beautiful has happened in your life this week or in this year and you want to move to praise, there's space for that too. Right alongside the lament. Right alongside the anger. Right alongside the destroy of my enemies is also praise. But interestingly enough, the praise is very rarely attached to a result. The psalmist rarely reports a change in circumstance as a result of our cries. They do sometimes move to praise, even though the external reality has not yet changed. Not always. They don't always move to praise. But when they do, we don't know that things have changed. Our praise instead comes from our recognition that we are involved in a covenant relationship with God who loves us, right? They don't spring from a delusion that things are better than they are, but from the capacity for human joy in spite of how things are. The dynamic of praise is not that God gives us something and answers that prayer, and then we go, okay, thank you, now I'll praise you. That's not the dynamic of praise in the Psalms. Through praise, we discover how much we've already been given simply because God has chosen to be in a covenant of love with us. At least we have someone to cry out to. At least we have somebody that will listen and cares when we go to them and we say, this is not right. This is so deeply wrong and filled with such injustice. Their blood cries out from the ground, God, do something. Have you forgotten? Are you sleeping? Do you not care? And thank you for hearing me. Thank you for giving me a place and a space where I can go because I'm wrapped up in a covenant of love with you. Even when I stand here and say, God, I'm so angry. And just the knowledge that we're loved, that we're chosen by God, that we're in that covenant relationship with God, that's what can move us to a moment of hope. As we ride all of these emotions through our Psalms, The psalms of praise and lament often end with anticipation, an expectation that God will act and that justice will be done. People who pray are people living in hope. But I just want to give the footnote to that, that that is not necessarily satisfaction. They might not be satisfied, but they're still living with some hope. Possibly it's just hope that things will be better someday right? That this is not the world and the intention that God had, but that someday there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering, no more human trafficking, no more injustice, no more slavery, no more spilled blood on the ground. But instead we look to a day where we go, yes, there will be some hope. There's some resurrection. There's a place where I'm looking to another day, another way. Now that's how God gives us permission to respond to violence and injustice and hurt and pain in our world. But I also have this additional question. Well, how does God respond to violence and injustice? You'll remember at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, the Lord looks upon the world and sees that it is wicked, that every inclination of humanity's heart is evil all the time. And God destroys the earth with a flood but then afterwards decides to never do that again and gives us this covenantal sign of his keshet, his bow in the sky, that God will never again destroy the world in a response to that violence and injustice and an evil. So what does God do now? 
Well, we as followers of Jesus know, don't we? God's response to the violence and the injustice and the evil in the world was to give God's own son. To lay down the life. The crucifixion is God's response to the violence and the evil. It's almost as if it's constantly saying this is the world we live in. A world with a lot of crosses everywhere we look. And we're to do something about that. Through scripture, through friendship, through our work for justice. We will not escape the violence, but the Psalms help us to understand how to confront it and how to respond to it. And through the example of Jesus, we see that then we can start to pray prayers like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm thankful that the Psalms don't offer any answers, but they allow us to dwell with the questions and the anger and the pain and the hurt and the injustice and the hope. I don't have an answer for what happened last weekend, and I don't have an answer for what happened this week, and I don't have an answer for what happened in Charleston, and I don't have an answer for for what happened at Parkland, and I don't have an answer for what's happened. I don't have an answer. And I can't imagine one that is satisfactory. There's not one answer out there that God could give me that's satisfactory. I'm glad that there's not an answer in the Psalms, and I'm glad instead there's just space for the anger and the hurt and the pain. Y'all, when we pray and we read the Psalms, the world doesn't become any safer. But hopefully our place in the world feels more secure and our movement more certain and more obedient and in line with God's rule and reign. Yay. (laughs) For me, this is hope. Honestly. I need a place and I need a God that can hold and take all of the stuff that rises up in me week after week, news report after news report. I need a place. I need a God that says I care deeply about what is happening. I have noted the cries and I am attending to the injustice in this world. It will not be forgotten. And I'm very deeply grateful that God's response to that evil and injustice is to say, for God so loved the world that God sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So whether you are in the dash my enemies, babies, heads against the rock camp, or whether you are in the God, why are you sleeping camp? Angry with people, angry with God. Or whether you're in the, no, I've moved to, I can trust God and I can praise him. That's beautiful and that's great. And that's part of it too. Wherever we are, my prayer is that we'll start to listen to the honesty of the Psalms. And if you don't know where to go this week or in any coming week, or just open up the Psalms and start reading. So I've included a few here for you for a couple moments of contemplation just at the very end of our service. This is from the translation of the message. Um, Eugene Peterson, who just recently passed away, may his memory be a blessing, pastor to the pastors, has written a translation for the Bible called The Message. It's colloquial. The verses are grouped together. And it keeps it maybe a bit more honest than some of us have heard in the past. We make 
our translations sound pretty, don't we? Uh, but Eugene Peterson has a line here, like at the, um, yeah, it's just, it's good stuff. You guys slice their lips off their faces, right? I mean, there's some things here that I think um, harass these hecklers, God, and punch these bullies in the nose. Don't you feel like that sometimes? You feel like you just read some report, see some act of violence, and you think, I just, somebody needs to just punch that person in the nose. I'm not advocating that. I'm just reading the, what the psalmist said. I actually don't think God is advocating that. I think God's just allowing us to feel frustrated and give our voice. So take a few moments, please, and we're going to ask the question again, how long? You guys all grab Psalm 100, the very last psalm on the back page, and stand with me, and let's read together. On your feet now, applaud God. Bring a gift of laughter. Sing yourselves into his presence. Know this, God is God, and God, God. He made us. We didn't make him. We're his people, his well-tended sheep. Enter with the password, thank you. Make yourselves at home, talking praise. Thank him, worship him. For God is sheer beauty, all generous in love, loyal, always and forever. Amen. Go in peace. God bless you all. May you carry all of it to God this week and always.